0: The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our not-school learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You are listening to the Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 155 is something like, what assumptions underlie the search for a theory of knowledge? We read Richard Rorty's Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature, Part 2 Mirroring, specifically chapters 3 and 4, published in 1979. To get the reading and more information, please check out PartiallyExaminedLife.com. My name is Mark Linton-Meyer, appealing only to the judgment of my peers in Madison, Wisconsin.
1: This is Wes All-One, epistemically privileged in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
2: This is Dylan Casey, just a perceptual metaphor in Middleton, Wisconsin.
1: Why, this
0: episode is a sequel, more or less, to the last two. The first of which, 153, we started talking about this book, about chapter one mostly, And then we took a detour into talking about Wilfred Sellers' argument against the myth of the given, which plays a central part in the critique here, as does Quine. And we did a Quine episode, but the stuff about Quine is actually about essays that we didn't read. So I had to do (laughs) a little outside reading. He
2: brings up two dogmas of empiricism. Yes. But you're right. It's not the focus of it. What do you mean? There's a whole... There's a whole section on Quine, but Mark's saying that we didn't read the stuff that Rorty focuses on.
0: Oh, I see. The stuff that we did read, a major point about that, just to refresh, had to do with the notion of linguistic meaning, as in this word is synonymous with this other word. This word means something else, he thought was kind of bogus. And the way it's discussed in this reading is in terms of indeterminacy of translation. So let's say you meet somebody that you don't know their language, and they try to teach it to you, so you're ET learning the human language and they point to something and say rabbit you know but using a word that you don't know then you don't actually know whether they're referring to that animal or to a stage of that animal at this slice of time you don't know how they're carving up the world and the only way you could find that out is by asking them more questions so you kind of have to come up with a theory of well okay i think they're referring to this animal something you know that they have approximately the same conceptual scheme that i do and then you can figure out more but there's always going to be something indeterminate about that. There are always going to be multiple possible ways to translate that. If you kind of apply that across the board, one thing to talk about is any set of data in science, there's always going to be more than one theory, more than one conceptual scheme, more than one net that you could use to explain or to even describe that set of data. The alternative to just figuring out based on context, based on asking more questions, based on coming up with a theory that could always be challenged is by somehow fixing at least some point right to reality. But we saw in that example of Ostension just pointing at the thing and saying, rabbit, you can't even do that. So yeah. how does that relate to what we were talking about with Rody on mind and Sellers on mind last time? Where if we're saying figuring out somebody's meaning is not a matter of figuring out what extra linguistic thing in their head their word corresponds to if that's not what what meanings are about meanings are about mapping words onto other words in socially acceptable ways it's a social construct
2: it's the interactions that we have with each other that define those rules of the game and those what those objects are
0: so is there any other sort of background knowledge that we needed to refresh
1: ourselves on before we talk about the very end of the reading <laughs> And the previous episode,
2: <laughs> yeah, Mark left to at the very end of the reading. Well, I like
0: talking about what the point of this all is.
1: So the Quine thing actually seemed to me to be the least relevant and most confusing for me. So chapter three, <laughs> the overarching point of this is he's going to challenge philosophy as it's typically conceived as a sort of epistemological enterprise that grounds. Other sciences, other ways of knowing, and is foundational to them or can sort of suss out their foundations and give them some sort of credibility. He gives a nice history of how philosophy sort of takes on that character, beginning with the attempts of early modern philosophers to make a place for sciences and a religious world. At that point, philosophy was sort of continuous with the sciences. And then the development of that through Descartes and Locke and Kant into this version of philosophy, which is no longer continuous with science, but has this special epistemological role. So that's how we kick it off here. And that's the overall point of all of this, is to create this challenge. But he's going to give a long description in this in chapter three of what all that means, this error how it's mistaken as well
2: and then the follow-up chapter is to sort of really go in deep on a couple of particular formulations of that criticism in sellers and quine not completely agreeing with them in the end criticizing them both a bit but putting himself squarely in a space with those two and wittgenstein at least philosophical investigations wittgenstein as being anti-foundationalist And having a deep criticism of that historical project of philosophy, which he, I think, wants to say that that just happened to be the historical evolution of philosophy as having defined itself in that way. And there are historical reasons why philosophy has come to understand itself in that way, but that's not the only way philosophy has to be.
1: So, yeah, so chapter 4. He's, in a way, Sellers and Quine represent a particular way out of the problem, which is that, you know, we'll see in chapter four that he thinks Kantianism pervades both continental and analytic philosophy. Its assumptions pervade it. And I think there are certain philosophers which he notes sort of get us out of that, like Wittgenstein and Dewey and Heidegger. Yet he's going to focus in in chapter four on Sellers and Quine in particular, because they sort of even though I don't think he thinks they completely give up the Kantian framework, they're sort of the beginning of the end in the sense that they get at some fundamental flaws in the whole picture, which we sort of discussed in our Sellers episode, One Horn of That.
0: So he's going to say both those guys somehow did not go far enough, which it makes it sound like, the way he puts it, that they should have been more like relativists, that Sellers, you know, we are saying that talk about mental representations is a little suspect in that you can't use them, as you might think, to ground knowledge, right? Your immediate acquaintance with what the color red is like, or what a pain is like, is not sufficient to actually ground anything. So it sounds very behaviorist to say that, no, instead, we have to sort of learn the language game of red or of pain, and there might be an inner feel, there might be still a qualia, but that doesn't actually play any explanatory role in me deciding whether you're in pain or not. But it always seems like it's ready to slide into some kind of, if not actual behaviorism, to say that, well, the language that we use to talk about the mental, for instance, is an immature, is a folk psychology, right? This is how Churchland, Pat and her husband Paul, who were students of Quine, how they argue for eliminative materialism. In other words, talk about beliefs and all that stuff should eventually, or at least in a real scientific language be replaced by talk of brain states. And so this whole trip, Rory thinks, is, so it's the idea of, okay, well, we found out that some kinds of talk, talk about beliefs, are just a matter of historically contingent circumstances. It's an optional, it's not something at the dawn of time that occurred to everyone is the central problem of philosophy. It's just something that built up because of the particular metaphors that philosophers used. But still, once we get rid of that, there's some more respectable scientific way of describing things. And Rorty really wants to kind of go farther and say that, no, all the allegedly scientific, all the physicalistic, and all, you know, those are all still historically developed ways of talking about these things. And so it's not Sellers ends up, and we didn't see this because we didn't, you know, Sellers and Quine. they have all these positive works about philosophy that we have not read, philosophy as continuous with science but Rorty wants to save the humanities. He wants to say that there are scientific language games and there are literary language games. And, you know, he does tend to think that epistemology in particular, once we get rid of these assumptions, that these metaphors that drive it, that there's kind of nothing left for it to do. Like the, the things it was trying to do either can be done by different branches of science or they can just as well be done through literature and other talk in the humanities that philosophies claim to be the queen of the sciences, underlying them all and judging them is ill-founded.
2: Yeah, that particular part is he's happy to dispense with. I might put it a little bit different way that I think that Rorty sees the activity of philosophy as something that really amounts to thinking things through and that that's not unique to some kind of profession of philosophy that endeavors to provide the foundations for all of our thinking, both scientific and moral, which is where he sees philosophy having staked out a claim for its own existence.
0: Well, I like the connection to morality was an eye-opener here. And he says he got this right from Sellers, but I kind of must have (laughs) missed this or missed the emphasis on this. We kind of think that a mature take on ethics acknowledges in some ways that it's a matter of ongoing historical discussion, that right and wrong are, to some degree, in some way, human inventions. And so, so many of our episodes have been to try to give an account to, for that that doesn't just collapse into pure relativism, you know, that still gives room for more wise ways of arguing moral points and more foolish ways that if you thought about them a little more, then you would say, no, that's not a sustainable morality. But that ultimately a, a lot of the arguments that we make, and the only ones that are going to be effective, end up being arguments about coherence. In other words, you shouldn't do that because you have some prior belief that that kind of thing is wrong. Well, so that's just the first part of the analogy. Rody wants to extend that to epistemology as well. Like all beliefs are not just, which seems crazy, like, beliefs about math and about the state of the natural world don't seem to be human inventions in the way that morality
1: probably is. I think he's wrong, and I think he's a relativist, but it's going to be hard for me to explain that.
2: Well, I think he's right, and he's a relativist, so. (laughs) So
0: There you go. We've staked out our positions in the first bit. I'll just say I find it intriguing. I find it an intriguing connection. The way I was just describing it makes it sound like Yeah, there are obvious differences between sets of beliefs about what other people should do and ideals that I hold up for myself. Those are one kind of thing. And then claims about the state of the physical world are not obviously social facts, even if the particular language that we use to describe things, of course, developed as a matter of contingent historical circumstance.
2: Even though he uses that pejorative of merely social facts, which is sort of the way of saying, well, it's just so wishy-washy, right? It's not that the claim that our understanding of geometry is merely a social fact, like the way in which we agree on stoplights or that we drive on the right side of the road, but that, what's the phrase he uses? That it's knowledge that versus knowledge of, and that Our understanding of mathematics is a development of a language to account for our interaction with the world that works. And when we say that it works, the justification for that does not lie in some third thing.
1: The claim is that it doesn't rely in a relationship to a mind-independent world. It lies in a relationship to other sentences produced by other language users. That's the claim.
0: Which is where it gets really weird to me.
1: Well, it's man is the measure of all things. It's relativism and it's a confusion of justification and truth. The way we justify things, yes, we can't go out and say, oh, look, here's the mind independent reality. Does it match my sentence? Of course, that's not the way we justify things. We do justify things in the coherence frame by relating our assertions to assertions of others and do assertions that are meant to serve as forms of justification but you can't have a coherent notion of you'll notice he doesn't talk really about truth or he implies that the theory of truth and the theory of justification are the same thing because that's a sort of pragmatic assumption. But I don't think that makes any sense. The theory of justification, theory of truth are not the same thing. What people are searching for when they're in the case of truth is they're trying to explain what in the world or what somewhere else could serve to explain why a sentence is true. The sentence can't be true because I justified it. Sentence isn't true because I went through, and a geometrical proof isn't true because I demonstrated it. The demonstration shows that it's true, justifies its truth, but it's not true because I demonstrated it. Or because it's in general demonstrable.
0: I'm mean, thinking back of our pragmatism episode, where actually Rory's name did come up as someone that I don't know where we one of us found that Rory was given as example of somebody that denied William James' claim that truth was to be defined in terms of human practices. You could say, sure, the, the definition of truth is not that, but still, for practical purposes, when you are seeking to justify something, when you are seeking to prove that something is true. It is a matter of making argument. It's a matter of what the sophist does. This is the way Rorty puts it in this, which is like trying to come up with an airtight case that no one will just test it on people and you see if somebody thinks of something to say against it rather than trying to connect it to a mind-independent entity. So it's not giving a definition of truth. It's talking about the procedures by which we deal with truth, the role that truth plays in life.
2: Yeah, and there's nothing else you can do. <laughs> right? There's no other way that it works. I mean, you could claim,
0: as part of your reasons, right, that isn't it obvious? Isn't it written in the structure or the fabric of the world that that X equals X or something? (laughs) Isn't it
3: exactly?
1: No, that's not. This is a conflation of the process of justification, the question of how we know things, and the question of what it means for something to be true. So there is no coherent, as far as I'm concerned, conception of an idea of a sentence being true without an appeal to a mind-independent reality, as problematic as that appeal is. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that the way we justify things is to say, hey, look at the mind-independent reality and see how it matches the sentence. That doesn't work.
2: But that's not what's being said. Rorty and the pragmatists would certainly allow for a mind-independent reality. That it exists outside. That's not what I've gathered from reading. any Oh, wow. I think I, I agree with Dylan that he does allow for
0: it, just like that he does allow for private experiences and qualia. He just thinks that they play no role in justification. Yeah. And that that is what has been at issue in trying to come up with a theory of knowledge, what philosophers are doing.
1: Well, that modest claim, that sellersian claim, let's call it, I think is right mm-hmm. on. That's not what I think is his claim in the second part of this. But if that's the claim, then I think that's right on. That's not what I got out of this. And I think when we get into the details, I can explain it further.
0: Shall we start with chapter three? Yes, sure. So the idea of a theory of knowledge, is the title of chapter three, theory of knowledge in quotes. So it's not, what can we know? It's, does the question, what can we know, (laughs) make sense? Does the whole enterprise of epistemology make sense?
1: So he's going to say how this whole enterprise, he's going to give a historical account of why it even arises
2: The end of the first section, where he talks about the three things that Kant did which helped philosophy as epistemology become, he calls it self-conscious and self-confident, I thought it was a real great summary of his point of view on it. Kant did three things which helped philosophy as epistemology become self-conscious and self-confident. First, by identifying the central issue of epistemology as the relations between two equally real but irreducibly distinct sorts of representations, formal ones, concepts and material ones, intuitions, he made it possible to see important continuities between the new epistemological problematic and problems, the problems of reason and of universals, which had bothered the ancients and the medievals. He thereby made it possible to write histories of philosophy of the modern sort. Second, by linking epistemology to morality in the project of destroying reason to make room for faith, that is, destroying Newtonian determinism to make room for the common moral consciousness, he revived the notion of a complete philosophical system, one in which morality was grounded on something less controversial and more scientific. Whereas the ancient schools had each had a view of human virtue designed to match their view of what the world was like, Newton had preempted views on the latter subject. With Kant, epistemology was able to step into metaphysics role as guarantor of the presuppositions of morality third by taking everything we say to be about something we have constituted he made it possible for epistemology to be thought of as a foundational science an armchair discipline capable of discovering the formal characteristics of any area of human life He thus enabled philosophy professors to see themselves as presiding over a tribunal of pure reason, able to determine whether other disciplines were staying within the legal limits set by their structure of their subject matters.
0: All right, so that's what a full-page. Yeah, that was a long quote. So maybe we break it down?
1: Well, I think we'll break it down as we move on in the chapter, because um, Kant himself already represents a sort of advance on a more... Primitive notion, let's say. The big distinction in this chapter is between, as you guys have mentioned, knowledge that and knowledge of. And for Rorty, it's the use of what he calls the ocular metaphor, which I think we discussed in the first part of this, that leads us astray. It's this modeling of knowledge on a interaction between a subject and an object instead of a relationship between a person and a person and what he calls a proposition. So I think we should say a little bit more what he means by that. I mean, we got that pretty clearly in the sellers last
0: time. Okay. Uh, however, we we just taught it like obviously these are different things and traditional philosophy has somehow confused them in trying to do this foundationalist enterprise what we did not discuss I mean, you're really pointing, Wes, at the unspoken issue with this, that even if you acknowledge that what knowledge is really about is my relationship to a proposition, and that if I'm going to argue for that proposition, I have to use other propositions. But still, it seems like, well, what actually makes a proposition true is the relation of that proposition to the world, the problem of reference. So even if it's not my knowledge of the world it's still then my knowledge that a proposition corresponds to the world. So just making the distinction between knowledge of a knowledge that would not get rid of the entire connection with the world. He has to then go on and have the only way to talk about the truth of a proposition is in terms of its relationship to other propositions, other sentences, which does seem to then
1: leave the whole thing unrooted, which is exactly what he wants to do. Right? Yeah. So we saw with our Tractatus episode that, you can use the metaphor even to talk about propositions and facts, right? As early Wittgenstein did, you could just make facts, these sort of fundamental ontological entities out there in the world and not objects, but they sort of seem very object like, right? And then your mm-hmm. propositions have to correspond to those facts. And I still think that kind of model is the sort of thing to which Rorty is objecting where, having knowledge is a matter of this kind of relationship to the world. So where that leads us astray is that once you believe that, then when you you think that justifying beliefs as in the project of epistemology means appealing to, say, the proper functioning of the mind, something like that instead of the typical common sense justification of appealing to relations to other propositions. So it's the task of someone like Locke to say, well, how does the mind function in such a way that it can represent reality accurately? This whole problem of representation crops up once you think of knowledge as a relationship between subject and object, because you get this intermediate layer. And once you think of the object as sort of impressing itself on the subject like something, you know, impressing itself on wax, and the imprint on the subject Becomes a representation, and then you have to worry about how the representation lines up with this external imprinting thing. He refers back to Sellers and saying Locke was trying to analyze epistemic facts without remainder into non epistemic facts. It's this idea that you can look at knowledge from within, from inside, or from outside. And the sort of epistemological idea, beginning here with Locke and then moving on to Descartes and others is that you can sort of get outside of knowledge and not think about it simply in terms of these justificatory relations to other propositions, but in terms of some kind of model of objects, right? You think, oh, here's the person and here's the object and there's a line between the two of them as if they're all these external things, and I can describe knowledge by treating them almost as elements in a physical system. And that is the kind of error that's involved here, he thinks.
2: Yes, because in the end, that putting the line in between those objects involves judgments, which are essentially propositions about the character of what you're seeing, to go back to the ocular metaphor. So You might think that there at least are some kind of basic
0: perceptual situations, we talked about this with sellers last time, where I'm put in front of a red object in normal lighting conditions, and my eyes are working, and therefore I am imprinted with red. There's nothing I can do, it's just the physiological mechanisms that make me have this idea red, and that somehow is
2: a foundation. But even sellers, right, will make all kinds of qualifications for that, but it still will be a proposition, It will be one that has a lot of good explanation for it, and there's all kinds of good reasons for it, which amount to it being corroborated effectively by other people agreeing with it. But uh, it's not foundational in the sense that everybody will have that clear and distinct image. He constrains it enough Mm -hmm. so that there will be enough common ground about it. It will be less easy to object to it. But it still will have that same kind of propositional character.
1: So remember a clear and distinct idea is almost analogous to a platonic form or a Exactly. Yeah, some sort of necessary truth, but I think once you've reached the analytic philosophy and sense data theorist, he thinks that's reverted back to Locke. The certainty lies in these presentations to the empirical faculty, let's say. And so if you think about how does a sense data theorist justify a proposition? Well, you analyze it and by analyzing it, you break it down and you see, oh, look, this larger claim about the, you know, the cat is on the mat actually breaks down into a bunch of different atomic claims, which are just ascriptions of sense data. Let's say to spatiotemporal points or something like that. And that because we know those individual sense data and then we properly assemble them, we properly infer the larger fact from the more atomic ones. Then our knowledge is justified because of that. Well, that's the kind of justification which I think Rorty thinks confuses the kind of causal, and as we saw, Sellers did too, the causal account of how we get to know things and how we actually justify things. So justifying the cat on the mat doesn't really depend on (laughs) our analysis into sense data. And as Sellers points out, sense data as sense data, aren't even knowable in a sense anyway. They ground knowing. They have to happen before you know things, but they can't be appealed to as justifications.
0: Yeah, they're not the contents of our phenomenological consciousness at any point. We always get them already baked into objects according to the theory. But then why even believe the theory if there's no way of independently verifying that there is this given before it's processed? You had mentioned Wittgenstein before and early Wittgenstein, and was making me think of uh, the relativist strain, even in the Tractatus, where he thought that there were these atomic facts, which we had a lot of trouble figuring out, like, well, what is an example of an atomic fact? They seem to be so atomic, like the sense data we were just talking about, that we never actually interact with them. Any actual sentence we would make is a wider net, is a conceptual scheme that is built out of many, 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 many atomic facts. So our whole way of knowing things is ultimately holistic, even though supposedly through analysis, at least in theory, you could break down any given actual belief into reference to atomic facts. So the only movement then from early to later Wittgenstein is just giving up the deep-seated part, giving up this atomic fact idea and just accepting the fact that you've got Again, the indeterminacy of translation or whatever metaphor that I was pulling from Quine is you know, that there's more than one way to describe any given thing.
2: Yeah, I thought what you just described, Mark, as the question raised by the Tractatus was a perfect example of why you would write philosophical investigations.
1: <laughs> All right, so we have this sort of Lockean framework in which it's knowledge of, which is primitive instead of knowledge that, and Kant sort of gets us halfway there Kant recognizes that whether you're appealing to sort of the rationalist framework of clear and distinct ideas, or you're appealing to the empirical framework of Lockean presentations to get you off the ground, you need something more complex, which is really what it amounts to as the proposition, which for Kant is the synthesis of concept and intuition or universal in particular. So that's the sense in which Kant is sort of trending in the right direction, but it's going to turn out he doesn't get all the way there.
0: Which was the first part of that long quote that Dylan read, that he thought in terms of the relationship between two kinds of representations, intuitions and concepts. And so that still amounts to, it's not us relating to propositions, that's us relating to these mental contents, some of which are intuitions and some of which are concepts,
1: it's us relating to objects, but objects in Kant's world are the appearances, and they are the union of concept and intuition. Unconsciously, behind the scenes, our mind engages in this constructive activity. So this is, I think, the main thing that Rorty is going to object to, this idea that the relation is to our own constructions. The idea is that we do this constructing thing, putting concepts together with intuitions behind the scenes and then producing these appearances, these objects in our world. And then we come back to it with judgment and we sort of recapitulate that process at a conscious level, but in a more analytic capacity. So we come back to our construction and we say, oh, look, this is how it's constructed. And we make a proposition and which relates a particular to a, a universal, which essentially, you know, acknowledges something that we already did ourselves behind the scenes. And Kant thinks there's something to that which makes knowledge possible. He's still working on this old problem of the relationship between mind and its unbridgeable gap to this unknowable reality. Well, Kant thinks that you solve that problem by making it a gap not between the mind and an unknowable reality, but between the mind and the thing that's been made by the mind.
0: And can we just refresh since we haven't talked about Kant in a while, and I'm sure a lot of people are, well, intuitions and concepts, what exactly does that mean? Like, can we give an example of, is an intuition like a sense data or like my sense of space, that space and time exist, that geometry that, so it involves both the sensory given that we were talking about in terms of the empiricists, but also the rationally given, you might say, X equals X, and the notions of identity, that there's always a specific number of things. Those are all, intuitions and then concepts, how does concept interact with that or do I not have intuition right?
1: So intuitions are something like particulars, but they themselves get constructed by the faculty of intuition in space and time. So what we get, I think in Kant, what we get is what he calls a manifold, which it's unclear exactly what that is, which kind of speaks to this whole problem. The manifold is pre-knowledge, so there's no way to... To talk about it. Once we've spatiotemporalized that, once we've sort of added one part of what it needs to be a particular, and then the concepts of the understanding, like unity and substance and things like that, go the extra leg in that regard.
2: Isn't the manifold the connection to the world, so to speak? Without that other stuff, it doesn't get broken up into individual entities it it isn't experienced in any way that you could say anything about but it's the conduit for the world becoming phenomenal for us
1: yeah so think of the manifold as sort of the result of stimuli from the, the problem is it sort of violates constant way of talking about things but the only way to think about it is that there's these things in themselves and they somehow interact with us and they cause the stimuli, but they're not stimuli in the way we typically think. So those
0: stimuli are the intuitions though.
1: Stimuli, I think, as sense data. They're not the sense. No, the intuitions have already been worked over. So there's a working over the manifold into an intuition. And then there's the larger relationship of concepts to the intuitions themselves. So we already have. Spatial-temporal particulars. Just think of them as particulars in the world, and then we want to make generalizations about them. We want to make predications. We want to say, you know, hey, that cat is white, where we relate that particular, the cat, to the concept of being white. That's what happens at the level of the the understanding and the concept. But before all that happens, everything has to be constructed conceptually. There's really two sorts of construction. One is the intuitional construction in space and time, and then the other is the addition of all the higher-level categories of the understanding where we make it a a knowable object.
0: Just to clarify how sense data corresponds to these things, it seems like the notion of sense data has been broken up into two stages, that you might have thought sense data were just the irritation of my eye or something, but the way you're saying, no, that kind of gets us the manifold, but then there's a first line of processing that makes it into something that's in space and time, and that gets us the intuition. And then actually saying that it is the color red or a dog is concepts. So concepts are kind of mean what we normally think they mean. It's just intuition and the manifold are the more technical terms here.
1: Yeah. By the time we get sense data, and this is really part of Seller's point and why he was such a defender of Kant, it's already worked over by the faculties of intuition and the understanding. It's already been conceptualized. So the sense data aren't the manifold. Or you could think of the sense data as the manifold, but in that sense they're not knowable. Once we said, hey, this is a red part in space and time, we're already at the conceptual level. And to say that we know that is already to be within the framework of propositions and justification and all that stuff. It's not a raw knowledge relationship to this datum, to the given.
0: One big thing we're saying, why doesn't Kant go far enough? Just to recharacterize the problem that he thought Locke had was that, again, he was confusing justification with causation. And the way we were putting it before is the idea that you could reduce all talk of knowledge to talk about causality, at least at some basic level. So how do I have the knowledge that there is a red spot in front of me, which is a very innocent kind of knowledge. At least it seems red. That's the paradigmatic case of the given that we were already saying that Sellers is
1: arguing against. Or maybe it, it's more helpful to say, how do I know the cat is on the mat? And then give a reduction to sense data or give a Lockheed an account of well, the mind is related to the world in this way. There's an external object, the cat, it impresses itself on the mind, and blah blah blah. You know what, exactly. Yeah. So
0: Kant still has, according to Rorty, a problem in that it's a matter of causation of the world. Even though you know technically causality is something that only happens within the space of appearances, and we don't know either. We don't know, or it just cannot apply to the thing in itself. Still, the way he talks about constitution, he used the word constitution instead. The only way that we can actually understand that is like the way that you were just describing it, Wes, is somehow the combination of the world and the mind makes us therefore have this knowledge. So even though his account of how that happens is different than Locke's, Still, the overall form of the account, that it's non-epistemic things, it's the relationship between a subject and object that somehow creates
1: knowledge, that that is the problem. Yeah, Rody is saying Kant confuses predication with synthesis, which is the higher-level version of the Lockean error. So that instead of saying, oh, why is the cat white? Well, there's this object, and it impresses itself on my mind, blah, blah, blah. In Kantian terms, you say, you get this manifold and then you work it over with certain concepts and intuitions until it looks like a white cat, and then you come back to it and make the judgment, hey, this is a white cat. So it's still a causal account in terms of it's a how-the-mind-works account, when really the way we would justify that knowledge claim in our day-to-day lives is different. I'm not sure... (laughs) what you do with the white cat or then point to it and say, look, can't you see it's white? But ultimately for Rorty, it's a matter of appealing to other propositions. That's the actual way we justify things.
0: Well, interacting with other people. So it's not even just me considering different propositions. It's that, you know, it seems obvious there's a white cat on the mat. But then if different people come to me and say, no, 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 that's not even there, then that will be a pretty good justification for me to question what seemed an extremely obvious claim. And
1: that's the only kind of challenge that really comes up in practice. I have internalized this social practice and language use and all these things that, well, I'm not sure how you would think about that actually. Yeah, is it just a language game
0: that we all agree that the cat is on the mat and that we all carve up the world such that, again, it's a cat and not a cat state, it's not a cat right now just like the rabbit
1: thing before That is it just custom? The reason why I got tripped up there is if I try to justify <laughs> the cat is white in terms of an appeal to language games and social practice and things like that, I think I'm making the same error again that he's criticizing because I'm just giving another causal account.
2: Mm, I have to right.
1: appeal to propositions which actually support it internally. So yeah,
2: You explain it rather than justify it. Let me just make the error here. It seems like when we give
0: a reason, why do I believe the cat is on the mat? Well, because I walked in the room and I looked there and I'm in normal lighting conditions and I'm not drunk. And so I refer to that, this causal account, as a pretty good prima facie reason for believing that the cat is in fact on the mat. So what's wrong with that?
2: There's
1: nothing wrong with that. I think he does say there's something wrong with that.
2: (laughs) What do you mean by saying that was the wrong way of doing it, Mark? You mean to provide an example of talking about it that Rorty would disagree with? If he says that Locke makes the mistake and then Kant makes the
0: mistake of confusing causation with justification, well, maybe I'm not confusing
1: those two, but actually as my justification, giving a causal account. Yeah, Rorty explicitly discusses this and rejects it. You're confused if you talk about justification in terms of an appeal to the correct functioning of the faculty.
2: The correct functioning of the faculty.
1: Yeah, you say, uh, my eyes aren't messed up, my mind is working properly, my brain is working properly, things like that. That's the causal account that he's rejecting. To justify in the sense that he likes is to give reasons why you think the cat is white.
2: But I took that all to be part of the process of giving reasons. I don't see why those are excluded. I mean, when you say the cat is white... There's a white cat on the mat. I don't see how Rorty's argument rejects all of the qualifications that you'd have to be if you were being pushed to the wall about it. Ultimately, you would end up saying, well, because I saw this with my eyes and that was the only way I am sure of it, there's all kinds of reasons that I could have seen a cat on the mat that there wasn't actually a cat on the mat. And I can't be any more certain about it than that, than I looked and I saw a cat on a mat and it was white. The causal account is defeasible is what you're saying. Yeah, I think you guys are using causal account in a very precise way. No, he he explicitly discusses this. I might not be understanding how you guys, and maybe even how Rorty is using this term causal account, invoking causality in the sense of A leads to B. I don't see how that is in any way, not part of Rorty's way of explaining the world. That you would say, A leads to B. You don't justify a
1: proposition. You don't say, I know X because of some account that describes a causal relationship between me, the subject, and then the
2: world. I'm very confused about the ground that is being stood on here. The claim that I give these justifications for the space in which I know this, this white cat is on the mat, is explanatory. I guess I'm not seeing how that relies on some deep account of the impressions that it's making on me.
0: Can we make the distinction that Sellers makes between facts and rules? So the fact that I am in a causal relationship with a thing is a fact, but the fact that I am saying the cat is on the mat by referring to my causal relationship is obeying the rule of how we typically justify that sort of phenomenon, right? So, as opposed to a thermometer, a thermometer also says it's 96 degrees because it is reacting to the fact, to a causal fact, but it is not obeying a rule. It is not conscious of a rule. It's not looking at a rule. Yes. And the fact that we are looking at a rule and not merely being caused means that we're giving an explanation, even though we used causation in the explanation. It's the fact that we're
2: explicitly referring to it. Does that fix it? Or That sounds right. I mean, I guess I would say it is we use causality to explain things all the time. That's the bedrock form of how we make any kind of explanation at all. And this is why I think that you're using causal explanation in a different way than what I mean. Can we clarify that it's explaining why I know
0: something?
1: No, it's a causal relationship between subject and object or between parts of the mind it's a particular kind of causal relationship that's at issue it's not i can't say well why is x the case well something caused something that's fine but i don't say i know something that I, I completely I agree think we need, i think it's clear with higher level propositions rather than something that seems to depend on ostention which is where we're getting tripped up because it's unclear how you cope with that in Wardy's picture, but you know, for a higher level, more complex propositions, obviously we're making appeals to other propositions. Why do you believe that Trump is a great president? <laughs> well, he's going to make America great again, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do that. Those sorts of explanations. It's just I was in the presence of Trump, and he caused me to right. acknowledge his greatness. I didn't even want to. Yes, the epistemological explanation is that well, the mind is attuned to things that are great, and great things can cause a clear and distinct great impression, and that happened to me. (laughs) In fact, my faculty of greatness detection went into gear. I didn't even know I had such a thing. So on page 141, he talks about this appeal to the proper functioning. So Green's distinction between an element of knowledge and conditions of the organism reminds us that a claim to knowledge is a claim to have justified belief, and that it is rarely the case that we appeal to the proper functioning of the organism as a justification. Granted that we sometimes justify belief, and I think this is going to clarify some of this by saying, for example, I have good eyes. Why should we think that chronological or compositional relations between ideas conceived of as events in inner space could tell us about the logical relations between propositions? After all, as Seller says, in characterizing an episode or a state as that of knowing, we are not giving an empirical description of that episode or state. We are placing it in the logical space of reasons or being able to justify what one says. So again, when we say someone is confusing causality and justification and we object to a causal explanation, we're talking about a particular kind of causal explanation about the relationship between the subject and the object as opposed to justifications which, again, are in a way internal to our logical space. When you give the epistemological explanation, you're stepping outside of the logical space. Instead of saying, Trump is great because of propositions X, Y, and Z, you say it by trying to step outside of the whole picture and say, "Oh, look, here's Trump and here's me and here's the line between us and here's the way he's affecting my faculty That's the illegitimate move to a causal explanation.
0: And this is what I think is genius about this reading. What I found most insightful here is this apparent connection between this and the is-ought distinction in morality. It's not enough to say this is good to point out a fact like, this brings me pleasure. We're playing a fundamentally different language game if we're doing the justificatory thing versus the stating facts thing. You know, they're related that if you're uh, making a case that this is good, well, the fact that it brings me pleasure might be one of the things that I cite, but it can't be the only thing, right? The is distinction that that basic logical thing means I have to bring in sort of another fundamental normative thing here. And so I think it's supposed to work the same way with identifications. Yes, it is one of the factors that justifies my saying the cat is on the mat that I'm in room with it and I have normal eyesight. But that's not the only thing. We also have to have the rules. We have to say, oh, well, whenever I'm in this sort of circumstances where I'm in normal lighting conditions and my eyes are working and nobody has given me any reason to think that this is an abnormal circumstance, then I am warranted in accepting this. But that claim that I am warranted is not actually given by the causal account. That's just something that, that's part of the rules of the language game.
2: Yeah, and I think that's right, Mark. And in fact, you know, that whole uh, long set of qualifications for that justification is not the way anybody would think about it at all. It, in fact, goes the other way, is that there are habits and internal and sometimes more explicit or less explicit rules for making those judgments. And then it's typically when you have other reasons that happen for questioning those judgments that you end up refining it. You know, you say, Well when I close my eyes and then open it up, up a half a second later, for all these reasons, I would, you know, expect to see what was there before me. And then if that's not true, then you figure out some other reasons and I want to call them causal reasons not in the way that Wes was referring to them but you want to find some cause for it there's there's a reason why when I closed my eyes and I opened my eyes up again then I saw a tree in front of me instead of my computer
1: you're departing from Rorty at that point
2: I don't know I think that's pure pragmatism straight up and down it's just the way that pragmatic thinking about the world works well, I like Dylan's point about the direction of justification
0: so thinking about not just a cat is on the mat but there is a dangerous thing in front of me. Like, clearly, we don't, in figuring that out, kind of evaluate objectively shapes and colors and then consult a set of rules. Like, no, we act more on these habits, these social customs, what has worked in the past evolutionarily for our species, not just for me. And then, if I find something, well, okay, the thing didn't jump out at me or somebody assures me, oh, no, no, it's not dangerous, then I might think more explicitly like, well, home, why do I still think that's dangerous? Even though the person is telling me it's not. And I have to get into what actually my reasoning is. The reasoning is not causing the fear or not. It's other stuff that's causing the fear. And, uh, the reasoning that comes
1: in involved when you're tempering it, when you're deepening, making it more subtle, the reaction. So here's my problem with all of this is that when a Locke or a Kant asks these, or a Descartes asks these sorts of questions They're not actually trying to justify a specific (laughs) knowledge claim. They're they're never asking, well, how do I know that cat is on the mat or this or that? And then instead of giving the correct explanation that any normal person with common sense can give, they launch into philosophical explanation. You know, as if someone asks them, hey, is it raining outside? Yes. How do you know? And then them launching into their epistemological theory. No one does that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't something interesting about saying how all of that works. In other words, you can abandon the idea that these sorts of theories undergird any sort of justification without abandoning the idea. Well, you know, actually, I want a theory of knowledge. I want a theory of how all this works in the same way that, for instance, if you're a mechanic and you're working on a car and someone else is trying to describe the activity of the mechanic and you say, well... The mechanic is never going to appeal to theory of combustion if he's fixing a combustion engine. He's going to appeal to sort of pragmatic considerations about, well, if you do X, then Y, you know, the car functions this way and I have to do, you know, there's no reason to appeal to any deep scientific theory, but you, there is another standpoint, there is another framework from which you would be curious about those things and you would be curious as to why doing X, Y, and Z on the engine actually fixes it, and you would need to delve into theory of combustion to understand that. And I'm not sure if this is a straw man or not, because I have to think more about whether or not Locke, for instance, is really confusing justification and causal explanation. But even if we reject that, and I think Rorty is right about this, if we reject that conflation, that doesn't mean we can't be interested in explaining how it is that people know things, not the why from the internal logical space question, but the how, take the external position and ask how, how is that possible?
2: Yeah. I would think that there's a lot of talking about how that is possible that can happen. And I guess I don't see how Rorty is objecting to it. And maybe the point is to try to be really clear about where the mistake is happening from Rorty's perspective and What's the problem with that mistake? I mean, part of it is that it just goes down a rabbit hole and you end up having this activity in philosophy that is constantly wringing its hands about where the foundation is and wringing its hands about stuff that just doesn't matter. Just that don't make a difference. Well, it doesn't
1: matter to who. As long as it, someone is curious about it, it matters. It matters to that person who's curious about it.
0: So can I read a quote here from Rorty? I think What Wes was saying about the philosopher just wants knowledge of how this works. Rorty is all for that. It's just he thinks that it's going to be scientific knowledge, that this idea of an a priori philosophical way of investigating this is going to be bunk. And the, the quote that gets at that, page 152, if Kant had gone straight from the insight that the singular proposition is not to be identified with the singularity of a presentation to sense, in other words, if he didn't mix up knowing how and knowing that, to a view of knowledge as a relationship between persons and propositions, he would not have needed the notion of synthesis. He might have viewed a person as a black box emitting sentences, the justification for these emissions being found in his relationship to his environment, including the emissions of his fellow black boxes. The question, how is knowledge possible, would then have resembled the question, how are telephones possible, meaning something like, how can one build something which does that? Physiological psychology, rather than epistemology, would then have seemed to be the only legitimate follow-up to Aristotle and
1: Locke. Right, which suggests to me, to satisfy Rorty, we have to become behaviorists, not just in the limited seller's sense of epistemological behaviorists, but we have to become full-blown behaviorists, and ultimately, I think, relativists. It just simply doesn't seem plausible to me that we can explain these things simply behavioristically. We have to appeal to internal states to talk about these things. If we really want to shed light on the problem, I mean, we can abandon the problem. That's another option. What I think is wrong about this is that he's looking at this from a pragmatic kind of framework that he doesn't spell out for us and he doesn't tell us that this assumption is at work and that everything depends on it. And it's just the assumption that really the nature of knowledge amounts to the question of how I justify knowledge claims and that there's nothing more to it than that. And then if you're looking at th- through things through that lens, then anyone who comes and says, well, the nature of knowledge is such and such causal explanations, you know, relations between subject and object, once you've accepted Rory's initial premise, then you can accuse them of confusing causality and explanation, because the nature of knowledge, you've already assumed, just is the question of how you justify things. I don't think that's what's going on with these early modern and then philosophers and then Kant, I don't think that they're really confusing justification causality. And I don't think when they give this, even though they're worried about the certainty of knowledge and the foundations of knowledge, they're really trying to say how it all works. They assume there's such a thing as knowledge, right? The whole premise of Kant's enterprise is that there is such a thing as science. How is that possible? Let's figure out how how it all works. They're not trying to say, hey, here's a general justification for any true belief that there is. That's not the project. And so that's why I think Rorty is is simply inaccurate to say that they're making that kind of confusion. They just don't accept his identification of any account of the nature of knowledge with you know how I justify knowledge claims.
0: So I wonder if we could review one of his historical claims that it was Kant that projected his concern about the relationship between the given and concepts that shape the given how he projects that back in history and says that, Oh, even Plato was concerned with that. And even Aristotle was concerned with that. And and that's just what philosophy is. That's what reason is. This is the revolutionary thing that Rorty is arguing is that, no, that's revisionist history. That kind of stuff was not
1: in Aristotle. was not in Plato. Maybe there were some hints of it. There's a good part here where he talks about the Pythagorean theorem.
2: Yeah. He talks about being in the grip of the platonic principle
0: So one thing he thinks is in Plato, this platonic principle on 156, is that differences in certainty must correspond to differences in the object known. So there are certain things, the things of the senses, that we just actually can't have knowledge about at all, according to Plato. It's only about the higher things, the universal things, that we can actually have knowledge of. And somehow that's because they have a legitimate form to them, and we can somehow get in touch with that by using reason or mysticism, depending on which, which dialogue you read,
2: or they're kind of the same thing. And in fact, at the end here, he says, if it is assumed that we need distinct faculties to grasp such different objects as bricks and numbers, as we have distinct sense organs for colors and for smells, then the discovery of geometry will seem to be the discovery of a new faculty called noose. This in turn will generate the problem of reason discussed in chapter one which I had to think what
0: that problem of reason was. It's just that once you have noose, and noose is the thing that grasps universals, it's only a, a little jump from that to it being immaterial. That I wouldn't characterize that as that's the problem of reason. But if reason taken with a capital R as a lofty faculty that is in touch with these things that are beyond individuals, that at least sets up... Not necessarily a good reason for believing that the mind is immaterial, but it leads one naturally over historical time to the idea that, yeah, just as universals are eternal, that dogness will exist. Even if all the dogs were dead, the part of me that understands dogness would survive if my body dies.
1: So the whole point of this is he's trying to argue that Plato wasn't concerned about this kind of relationship between intuitions and concepts that Kant is concerned about, for instance, or even about a relationship between inner and outer, about the relationship between mind and world. Rather, it's a difference between types of objects.
2: Yeah, after the section that you read, Wes, he refers back to this foundation knowledge question. He says, the major point I wish to make about the necessary contingent distinction is just that the notion of foundation of knowledge Truths, which are certain because of their causes rather than because of the arguments given for them, is the fruit of the Greek, and specifically platonic, an analogy between perceiving and knowing. The essential feature of the analogy is that knowing a proposition to be true is to be identified with being caused to do something by an object. The object which the proposition is about imposes the proposition's truth. So this is what you were referring to about a causal explanation.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So, so, he, so far he's giving an account that says the thing that I'm criticizing actually does in some way date back to the Greeks. But that doesn't actually touch on the question that launched this was, yes. which was, how is Kant's history revisionist? Like, so far it seems like he's right. Yeah. Kant is correct. So, what does Kant say that was actually wrong? He's not, Kant is not saying that causality and justification were confused.
1: No, I mean, he's, and I'm not even sure he accuses Kant directly, but uh, maybe neo-Kantians, people will come after him, I'm not sure. But the idea is that you can look at Plato through the lens of a problem of reconciling particular and universal, which is sort of analogous to the Kantian problem of reconciling intuition and concept. But I think he's saying for Plato, that's not really it. It's not that there's this huge epistemological problem, I have to reconcile... Particular and universal, it's just that universals are knowable for Plato, and particulars the world of becoming isn't. So it's a different sort of thing. It's a metaphysical distinction rather than
0: epistemological one, he says. Exactly. Or he says. Yes. So Kant might have thought that folks way back then were concerned with his distinction between intuition and concept.
1: Or some version of that, yeah.
0: So is the thing that is really characterizing the post lockean I know the thing that characterizes Descartes and Locke and Kant, as we said, Rorty says in chapter one of here, is this distinction between inner and outer. The things in my mind and then the outside world. And that's the thing that Kant says, I believe, according to Rorty, that even Plato and Aristotle were concerned with, but really not, Rorty says, that actually Plato was very much a realist about all this stuff. So, yeah, there's the real world of forms that's actually knowable, and there's the confusing sensory mass, but that's not internal either. It's just yeah. that there are two different metaphysical
1: grades of things in the outside world. It's not a defect in the subject or a defect in the relationship between subject and object. Yeah. The, the virtues and the defects are all in the objects themselves. Although it makes sure the allegory of the cave sure makes it sound like.
0: If I put myself in a different causal relationship with the forms, if I leave the
1: cave, being in the cave sounds like a defect in the relationship between me and the object. So, for instance, take the Pythagorean theorem example. So, he's advocating thinking of our certainty about the Pythagorean theorem as a way of thinking that no one will find an objection to the premises from which we infer it, not to explain it by the relation to reason to triangularity. But no one tries to explain the Pythagorean theorem. When they're justifying it, when they're proving it, by you know, I don't go up to the board and say, "Oh, well, it's the relationship of reason to triangularity; therefore, a squared plus b squared equals c squared." That's silly. When someone appeals to triangularity, they're not trying to justify it in the typical sense. What they're trying to say is how, what grounds a truth claim. I mean, there's there's an epistemological component to this, and there's a metaphysical component. It's just the idea is that if sentences are to be true. There must be something out there in the world that they're true of. And if you get rid of triangularity, you you could substitute more complex ways of describing it, and we could use triangularity just as a gloss on that. So you can think of less objectionable ways. You don't have to be a Platonist. But I think if you get rid of the idea that there's anything about the world that grounds that claim, I think you're in trouble. I think you're on the path to relativism.
2: But it sounds like you're talking about two things, Wes. One would be what's being held together by talking about triangularity. One might be something like the form of triangularity or or something like that, that you get to know triangularity, which seems to be the kind of thing that he's referring to, especially when he's bringing up Plato. Rortius. Yeah, this is, a, this is a really good point, actually. Yeah, but, but that you could also be meaning triangularity in something as a, a placeholder for, or actually a concept that refers to a whole bunch of other propositions, right? It amounts to... Something like an electron, right? Or any number of other things that come with a whole bunch of descriptions about them. And you don't mean anything more than that. For instance, importantly, you don't mean that triangularity exists as triangularityness somewhere. You don't have to refer to it as in a platonic form or something like that. That doesn't have to be the content or what you mean implicitly or explicitly by triangularity. So in the platonic
1: account of knowledge, we might give a like genetic account of how someone comes to know well I'm just thinking of the you know the platonic idea of sort of gazing at a form of sort of becoming acquainted with a form of the good in the, in the same way that you might become acquainted. and then similarly you might become acquainted with triangularity, which would be that does sound to me like that's a legitimate case of confusing justification and causal explanation, but I have to think more about it because again, the way we really come to understand the Pythagorean theorem, is through relating other propositions and other, it's, um, it's knowledge that it's exactly the way he describes it. Right. Right. My point is that how we justify things is much different than what makes them true. So that's a distinction which I would preserve and which I, you know, he doesn't preserve, but, and I don't think he, I think with lots of problems with not preserving that distinction. There's no argument from him, at least in this, the parts of the books we've read that we ought not make this distinction.
0: Isn't there though in the traditional you know the mino version of how we know mathematical truths there is some account explicitly for Plato that we know mathematical truths because of our relationship because of a metaphysical fact
2: right because we were before we were born blah 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 in by our reason we have it's you know the myth of recollection that we we know all these things mm-hmm. already And that the process of the slave boy learning the existence of irrational numbers and the the lack of correspondence of counting numbers to number a magnitude comes out from him. And it, it might be revealed with help by a philosopher acting as a midwife for those ideas, but it's that those are already in him because he has reason.
0: In the Kantian version, even setting aside the metaphysical, the mythical part, is that somehow our mind is constructed so that we... You don't want to say we have a relationship to triangularity, but the way it's put here, it's about the propositions used to argue for the Pythagorean theorem. So somewhere, there are some very basic propositions that spatiality is, or something yes. like that. This, the character of spatiality, which somehow these are ultimately founded, according to these views, on our relationship to that object, however you want to describe it.
1: Yes, Kantian construction is an analog of platonic recollection. It's just that for Kant, he needs to account for scientific knowledge as well. And also he is thinking of mathematical truths as, uh, also as a priori synthetic and not just analytic. So he needs to, he's trying to bro- account for a broader spectrum of knowledge than Plato would have acknowledged, right? It's not just mathematical truth for Kant or maybe the good and moral truth, but there's also scientific knowledge of the empirical world, which Plato
2: rejected. We already read part of this, but I wanted to draw our attention back to it. It's just before the Pythagorean theorem. Rorty says, if it is assumed that we need distinct faculties to grasp such different objects as bricks and numbers as we have distinct sense organs for colors and for smells. So when he says that, he is immediately referring to the notion that the power of reason and our understanding of number is somehow categorically distinct from our other kinds of faculties that are reason-like. And I take Rorty as denying that, that our grasp And the faculties we use to grasp that there are bricks in the world is no different than the faculty that we use to number them and to come up with mathematics. And that mathematics itself is born out of the same kind of reasoning and faculty that we use to distinguish this from that and talk about bricks and grass and human beings. And that he's saying that Plato and maybe... Kant, by proxy, makes a distinction between those two things, that there is a different faculty that we have for grasping things like numbers versus things like bricks. So putting
0: it very grossly, it seems like Rorty is going to have to say it's the same faculty, and it's the faculty of participating in a language game, for instance, which there's going to be some that are more complicated than others, so yeah, being a theoretical physicist involves some trickier language games (laughs) involves a lot more discernment than being able to identify the cat on the mat. But ultimately, the building blocks are the same, and they're ones that can be studied by ordinary physiological psychology, I guess. Although, just throwing that in, again, this seems to be where Wes was having his big problems, and I think I agree, because ordinary physiological psychology would only be talking about physiology. So in that particular formulation, if that's, you know, a quote from Rorty, then it sounds like he is being very behaviorist. Now elsewhere in here, he actually disagrees with Sellers and Quine, or at least one of those guys in dismissing talk of the mental in terms of, you know, strictly scientific talk would get rid of this folk psychology that he actually thinks that intentional talk, in other words, talk about aboutness, talk about the sort of adjectives that we've used to talk about the realms of the mental, that, you know, those are, not illimitable. You can't get rid of those in
1: certain language games. He rejects Klein in yep. favor of Sellers, because Sellers doesn't want to get rid of that either. He's perfectly fine with the inner states that we know, as long as we don't think of them as primitive and we think they are ultimately theories that postdate our acquisition of language and blah, blah, blah. Or we're not theories, but relying on theories, informed by theories. So,
0: so have we covered the Kantian part enough, or do we want to say a little more about synthesis or any of that? I feel like we've gotten most of both our review and Rorty's take on that out there. So that would bring us to the end of chapter three, finally. Or were there any other things that you guys had underlined or points that we haven't made yet? No, I think we should close out this chapter if we have any hope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so the good thing about chapter four is that, well, he's got an introduction, but then he gets pretty quickly to his take on sellers, which There's a little bit that we have to say about that, just in the way that Rorty talks about it in terms of epistemological behaviorism, the fact that he emphasizes some points and Sellers that we didn't emphasize in our last discussion, one of which was this distinction between facts and rules, which I already brought up. And then he gets to Quine, which I don't think we're going to have a lot to say about. I kind of said everything that I could figure out about it in a minute of talking at the very beginning of this discussion, and then he's got his conclusion. So that's all that's in this chapter.
2: So let's do it.
1: Yeah, I think the Sellers part is what we should focus on, Mm -hmm. the epistemological behaviorism section. But one of the things he sees in both Quine and Sellers is that they're in favor of what he calls holism, which is this idea that, again, that justification is not a matter of a special relation between ideas and objects, but of conversation and social practice. So that is mid- Um, towards the middle of page 170. Yep, and this relates exactly to
0: what we were just talking about in terms of Plato, that remember one of the two dogmas of empiricism that Quine was trying to get rid of was the distinction between analytic and synthetic propositions, right? Ones just in virtue of meaning, so like these fundamental properties of geometry, maybe, and ones that are true, you know, of a matter of contingent empirical fact. And he thinks that it's better to think of having a web of belief. And some of these things, like these fundamental geometric axioms, are near the middle of the web. And so it would require a lot more to sort of drill to the middle and change them. Whereas things on the edge of the web, you know, you just encounter a different thing in your daily life and like, okay, well, I was wrong about that. I can change that belief. But still, there's nothing that's ultimately immune. There
1: are no beliefs that are just apodictic, that just force their truth upon us. Right. So to continue that, Quotation. Conversational justification, so to speak, is naturally holistic, whereas the notion of justification embedded in the epistemological tradition is reductive and atomistic. I shall try to show that Sellers and Quine invoke the same argument, one which bears equally against the given versus non-given and the necessary versus contingent distinctions. The crucial premise of this argument is that we understand knowledge when we understand the social justification of belief and thus have no need to view it as accuracy of representation. And he has a nice pithy way of putting this, where conversation replaces confrontation, as in the confrontation of the subject with the object. Once conversation replaces confrontation, the notion of the mind as mirror of nature can be discarded. I like that as a sort of a sales pitch for his view much yeah, better that it's yeah. not
0: just actually well grounded belief versus just free floating not connected to the universe in any way just conventionally totally relativistic no it's that it's a conversation it's peace there's peace and progress as opposed to confrontation that object shoves itself at us and that sounds bad we'd rather have conversation and that's <laughs> much more
1: genial <laughs> Can we have a conversation around epistemology? I would like to confront you. Sorry, I I really—that's like one of my pet peeves—is this idea of let's have a conversation around something, some hot topic, political hot topic. Let's never say the word. Don't have a conversation around it. Just make an argument. Try and persuade someone. Anyway, sorry, I'll save, save. let's I cut to, that into our political conversation. I, I
0: just have to think about whether I buy that or not. I kind of like, not the way you put it, dancing around the issue and not actually mentioning it, but I do like the metaphor of exploring something more than, I'm just going to make an argument about it, because I don't usually understand something well enough to just make an argument about it,
2: like in, in this reading. Yeah, I was going to say, Wes, with your comment, it made me wonder about your St. John's <laughs> Bonafides. fides.
1: <laughs> no, because it's this is an idiom, which means, which you guys are taking literally. <laughs> to have a conversation around a political hot topic is actually to come to it with a set of political presuppositions that are indisputable and actually not subject to revision. And the conversation around it is simply sort of giving your fellow partisans oh, pats on the back okay. and reinforcing your agreement with each other. And it avoids the hard work of persuasion and actual, actually being interlocutors to each other and challenging each other. That's my objection.
2: I guess the piece that I would add to it is that you could have the activity of inquiry be not necessarily about persuasion, but about trying to understand. And that would be in the same space, but wouldn't be about sort of sitting around and just saying your piece about it. And that sounds to me like what you mean by... A conversation around rather than actually having a conversation, which it sounds like there's a bunch of people talking.
1: Yeah. If Plato's right, understanding things involves an agonistic process or struggle, something that is uh-huh. analogous to wrestling. And the way that works is that you actually have to get together with your friends, your true friends, your real friends in the Aristotelian sense, the people who will discuss these things with you, and you have to engage in disagreements with them. That's the only way to actually move forward.
2: So I think that what you described is one of the main reasons why Rorty would say is, that's how we know things about the world, is exactly that activity.
1: Well, I agree. I think he's right on, and Sellers is right on, when you talk about how we justify things, the process of how we come to know the truth, or you know, to think we know the truth, to know things. Yes, it's a matter of first of all being inducted into a language game and then having certain types of relationships to other language users and then a relationship to the world, which yes, you can even describe behavioralistically because you can talk about all the steps that lead up to your being able to function in a language game before you're ever conscious, before, you know, there's that kind of genesis period. But my problem is that however much you accurately describe the way we justify things, that's not the same as saying, well, this is the nature of knowledge or this is the nature of truth. I, again, I see the how of justification as distinct from those things, which is, it's another way of saying I'm more of a, what Stuart Humphrey calls a zetetic skeptic, which is a kind of skepticism, which he's attributing to Socrates and maybe to Plato to some extent, where you, you think there is a truth of the matter. There's an external mind-independent world, and there's a truth of the matter to it, and knowledge has to involve some sort of systematic relationship to that. And it doesn't have to be correspondence or something as simple as that. But where are we stuck inside our language game or our system of justification? And that's our predicament. So we can't ever know anything with certainty or know that we know. But the faith element of it is that there is some something that's true that we can be closer to or farther away from, and that inquiry is worth it. We're never done with inquiry, yeah. that we're always at a distance from the truth, but that there is something towards which inquiry trends, and that it's not simply internal to the process of justification, to the language game, to the relationships between language users, and so on, to social practice.
2: Wouldn't that be what the condition for truth is? Right. And there's surely more to say about it, but I take it that there is an external world that what I'm talking about ought to line up with. And there may be lots of ways to justify that lining up with, but that's the measure that when I find that things aren't lining up with the world, then I say, well, that must not be true. It's wrong in some way. And when it is lining up with the world, then I'm more inclined to say that it could be true or that it it is true. And that that's a condition of truth, but that in the end, that judgment that it's truth involves a whole bunch of justifications. That's very, very close to where pragmatism is sitting, is taking exactly that fundamental premise that there is out there something true about the world.
0: Let me add that I think Wes, the way you were just describing, you actually were just giving Rorty's distinction between causal facts and justifying reasons. You said even if we know how we acquire this linguistic competence, how we enter it into the language games, those are all just causal facts, and that wouldn't get us. That doesn't
1: capture the activity of searching after truth because it's only internal. After we, but it can capture the nature of truth. It can capture the nature just, of knowledge and the nature of truth without. No, but it doesn't, though.
0: It does because you're saying he's giving a different definition of truth, which he doesn't talk about, and a different definition, a different account of knowledge. That what, right. what knowledge, and he explicitly says, I'm, I'm not trying to give, <laughs> he says, I, he's not trying to give an alternative account of knowledge. He's trying to argue that the notion of an account of knowledge doesn't make sense at all
1: that that is not itself an account of knowledge. He's assuming that knowledge amounts to how we justify but things. But it's, it's not. He explicitly says that's that he's not doing that. He's not saying anything about what knowledge is. I think he is. <laughs> he says knowledge is justified true belief. That's one of his... So he's not refraining from statements about knowledge. So
0: that, right, knowledge is justified true belief is not an epistemological claim, strangely <laughs> enough. <laughs> I think it means that... <laughs> that well. that's something within the knowledge language game it's just a not very specifically we all know that there when you actually try to really hash out what that amounts to that it's very very difficult we had whole podcasts that were <laughs> touched on that the one with Chalmers i remember he has a whole section in his crazy book about that and it deserves a future
1: episode by us to deal with that aspect of this more completely but uh but we definitely yeah. would not be doing epistemology if we did that <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think according to him, what makes something distinctly epistemology, what makes it theory of knowledge, is to have this... Representations and... Yes, is to to be talking about the representation between the mind and the world, and is saying that something first is a belief, like there's no problem talking about that, it is justified In other words, according to whichever language game we're playing, and those are going to be different for justifying something in the physical sciences and justifying the cat is on the mat. And it's true. And true, it is frustrating that he doesn't seem to have a definition for that. I think he just thinks that it is basic, that you don't need, like William James thought, you don't need to operationally define it, that that is a dead end.
1: Yeah, so I just think, you know, again, there's a fundamental, and this I mean, I think if we do more pragmatism, we could get deeper and we probably we should get deeper into this. I just might not understand. It may be too sophisticated for me to get at this point, which I might get it in the future, because right now I just think it's wrong. But this idea that you can say, say the nature of truth involves how we justify things. I think that's actually kind of a version of uh, psychologism. I don't think it works but we really ought to do more some more pragmatism and and stuff that directly addresses this problem. Yeah.
0: I also have
1: rush in my head that if you choose not to decide you still have made
0: a choice. That <laughs> if you choose not to have a theory of knowledge you still have made You a actually choice. still are giving a theory of knowledge. It's just it's a <laughs> shitty theory of knowledge. It's <laughs> that that Using the phrase "theory of knowledge" doesn't make any sense. That still is a theory of knowledge. Or how would Rorty respond to that? I mean, he does very explicitly, but I don't know if I can make it more clear than what I already said. Does he? Does he respond in this reading? Doesn't he set up the whole thing like I am not giving a theory of knowledge. I am trying to explain why the whole notion of theory of knowledge doesn't
1: make sense. Well, this is why his you know he does these historical genetic accounts because it allows you. And your, when you're in the historicizing mode, I just think it's another way of pretending that you're standing in a neutral frame with a sort of view from nowhere. I mean, it's very erudite and it's very interesting, but
2: why is it claiming that he's standing in a position from nowhere? As because, as Mark points out, he's he really is giving
1: a theory of knowledge, but he has to pretend that he's not doing that by simply look. Here's a history of how this theory of knowledge came to be, as if he simply. Telling you about other people and not about himself. So he's telling you about himself also.
0: Yeah, I think he has to admit and he does admit that, of course, his own. Critique comes from a perspective that there's hermeneutics involved. He doesn't use that word, genealogy involved. That he's a player on the field, right? Yeah, that that it it seems just like you know Nietzsche's genealogies are coming from the whole tradition of genealogy, which Rorty is very much aware of. Uh, You know, he's much more plugged into continental philosophy, and you know has nothing but nice things to say about
1: Hegel, seemingly throughout here. So he's yeah, I I don't think you could accuse him of a view from nowhere. I think the the genealogical account, the genetic accounts, in a way, amount to that, or they can. I I don't know. I don't want to push that point hard because I think we should get it to epistemological behaviorism. Let's do it. But yeah, I think you know, it's I I can't articulate my objections any better than I have, and I I, like I fully admit that I may, after (laughs) years and years of, (laughs) of this stuff, still not still not understand. At one point, I'll figure it out, or one of you two will be able to explain it to me. So. I, if
0: only Seth was here. Seth would explain it yes. all. <laughs> Let's do section two, epistemological behaviorism. He's characterizing Sellers here, but I don't know that Sellers uses that term. So what does this epistemological behaviorism
2: oh, amount to? He, what is well, it? he just explains it on page 176, right? Go for it. He says, epistemological behaviorism, which might simply be called pragmatism, where this term, not a bit overladen, is a claim that philosophy will have no more to offer than common sense, supplemented by biology, history, etc. about knowledge and truth. The question is not whether necessary and sufficient behavioral conditions for S knows that P can be offered. No one any longer dreams they can. Stop there for a second, because that was the program
0: of, if you want to say that somehow the mental is not real, or we don't have to include it in any, any theory, then you have to be able to say, John believes that the sun is shining, you have to be able to cash that out in terms of his actual behavior or his potential behavior. In other words, if I ask John, is the sun shining? He will say, yes, unless something else. You know, There has to be some long list that you would come up with. And that, just like the idea of saying what amounts to justified true belief, (laughs) ends up being a very, very, very
2: long list and never actually works. So, to be behaviorist in the large sense in which Sellers and Quine are behaviorist is not to offer reductionist analyses, but to refuse to attempt a certain sort of explanation. The sort of explanation which not only interposes such a notion as acquaintance with meanings or acquaintance with sensory appearances between the impact of the environment on human beings and the reports about it, but uses such notions to explain the reliability of such reports. So what Sellers calls this is
1: methodological behaviorism as opposed to philosophical behaviorism? Epistemological behaviorism. Epistemological, yep. No, but Sellers calls it methodological behaviorism. So that's what Rorty is adapting. Gotcha. So on page 184, Empiricism and the Philosophy of Mind, I just want to, because I think Sellers is clear in a way, so I'm just going to read a little bit from Sellers. As a methodological thesis, it... Methodological behaviorism involves no commitment, whatever, concerning the logical analysis of common sense mental discourse, nor does it involve a denial that each of us has a privileged access to our state of mind, nor that these states of mind can properly be described in terms of such common sense concepts as believing, wondering, doubting, intending, wishing, inferring, etc., if we permit ourselves to speak of this privilege, access to our states of mind as introspection, avoiding the implication that there is a means whereby we see what is going on inside as we see externally circumstances by the eye, then we can say that behaviorism, as I shall use a term, does not deny that there is such a thing as introspection, nor that it is on some topics at least quite reliable. The essential point about introspection from the standpoint of behaviorism is that we introspect in terms of common sense mentalistic concepts. And while behaviorism admits, as anyone must, that much knowledge is embodied in common sense mentalistic discourse, and that still more can be gained in the future by formulating and testing hypotheses in terms of them. So, this is not a denial of privileged access to one's own internal stuff. It's just that for sellers, that's not the primitive thing that comes first, right? First, you're inducted into the language game, and that's done behaviorally. And it's only after you can develop a theory of the mental, a theory of the mind that you can come back to yourself and see inner states and things like that. Yeah, Brody even says the notion of experience
0: is not basic. Yeah. It's a theoretical concept.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's more about what's primary and what's secondary than it is. It, It doesn't eliminate the mental, but it makes it secondary to language and a whole set of behavioral interactions that lead up to language and that constitute language.
2: And this is where Sellers' analysis of our thoughts as being fundamentally language like, that the mere act of thinking has a semantic structure that is language like, becomes very powerful there. The proposition making runs all the way to the bottom as far as Sellers is concerned.
1: Right. Another way of saying that is it's not that we don't have the interstates, it's just you don't need them to explain language. So you could have, you know, going back to his. Brylian people who basically, they have thoughts and they use language about the external world, but they don't know that they have thoughts and they they don't have the vocabulary to talk about that, so they don't have knowledge of their own inner states. But they can develop that and they naturally do. So that gives you, again, a picture of the priority. that doesn't deny the mental, but it says the mental is secondary to this other behavioral stuff.
0: And just to bring back Rorty chapter two, I brought up in our discussion of this point about the Rileans, is that he has this picture of the Antipodians. And the difference between those and the Rileans is that you said the Rileans naturally learn this language. Well, the Antipodians, even though they meet us earth people who explain, like, yeah, we have these terms like pain and memory and all these things, the Antipodians just can't get it. They don't learn. And so Rorty thinks more strongly that these theoretical mental terms are not necessarily something that Has to just naturally, as a matter of course, develop in us that there are different possible conceptual schemes and social histories that would even make it so we just would not gain these terms no matter what. And that wouldn't actually not, there would not be any behavioral difference that comes out of that. They
1: would just think that we're talking about, you know, phlogiston Mm -hmm. or some part of a weird theory. And I'm probably wrong to attribute that to sellers, this idea of it naturally happening. I, it's just, that's just what I think.
2: It seems to me that he does. By making our most basic thinking propositional, it removes the problem, makes it a a non-question about things like the correspondence between our thinking and how the objects impress themselves upon us. Because everything is propositional and our very thinking is propositional, then that makes all of our most basic interior occurrences of mentalistic activity propositions about the world. And not the world imposing something on us sounds very Kantian <laughs> it's because we use language to
1: constitute the world that anyway were you just saying, Dylan, that every that the implication of that
0: is every bit of our mentality involves this language like structure. that's why I take sellers to be saying, yeah, okay, so this section three of here is this prelinguistic awareness, and this is what we had problems with when we were evaluating sellers. It seems like. Is, is there a problem in, is he denying that babies and, and animals have mental lives? And if the correct formulation of Sellers' view is what I think you just said, Dylan, which is that this propositional structure sort of invades the very depths of our mentality, then, yeah, that would mean that those non-language speakers would not have any mentality. And so Rorty specifically says in here that that's not what's going on. It's just the differences between knowing what something is like, which is a mental act, and knowing that something is the case, which is another mental act. So
1: both of those are mental. Sellers agrees. Like you can, you can have non-linguistic mental yes. awareness. It's just that you can't know anything non-linguistically. And
2: that awareness is not the same as knowledge. You have to take seriously that "sellers" means that it's language-like. It's not that you have to have language. You know, babies are making. He doesn't do it in the piece that we read, but apparently he takes this further and acknowledges that, depending on the level of sentience of an animal, they would be doing the same sort of thing of having, you want to call it pre-linguistic, but linguistic-like that they're thinking is linguistic-like in what way? It has semantics in it, right? Even if it's not articulable, spoken language.
0: Well, and I think that has to be true. So I think he gives the example here of like a baby knowing the experience of red. And so, and he says explicitly like, well, you wouldn't really know what red is unless you have the concept of red, which means you can contrast it with other colors. You know, redness is a color, stuff like that however i would think that just having the experience of knowing what red is like does involve knowing that other things are not sure. red. knowing the difference between so in that sense yes it is semantic even though it doesn't involve a concept red but still like you could have something that is concept like it just doesn't have a syntax it doesn't have the full thing that a concept would have
2: just like knowing this from that and red and not red, and, and animals, you know, a predator, for instance, just clearly my dog has to be able to do this kind of stuff. And it's functioning in a semantic way in their cognitive experience.
0: And that seems to jive very well with the example I gave near the beginning of this about fear, that you don't do some explicit reasoning and put something in the category of predator or not predator. That determining that something is a predator is neither merely like the thermometer registering that it's 98 degrees. It's not a purely automatic stuff. There is some qualitative component to it. There's a feel to it, but it's also
2: not reasoning. There is something like a judgment going on there, right? There's identification, there's recognition, Mm -hmm. there's saying this is like another thing that's been placed in my memory. There's all those activities that it seems impossible not to call them thinking, (laughs) Sure. When are you
0: going to get your friend that wrote the book about animal consciousness to come and
2: talk I can us? get him to talk anytime you want to. Gary Borgerson about um, dogs being friends. Sure. 2017. <laughs> it's going to happen. I'll give him a call. It would be a good excuse to go out to Oregon. He might be a practicing psychologist right now. So have we conveyed what Rorty's point in this section three is?
0: Were there more juicy quotes that we need to read?
2: Um, just a second.
0: Psychological nominalism. The nice term. So I have a quote on page 187 picked out. Seller's psychological nominalism is not a theory of how the mind works, nor of how knowledge is born in the infant breast, nor of the nature of concepts, nor of any other matter of fact. It is a remark about the difference between facts and rules, a remark to the effect that we can only come under epistemic rules when we have entered the community where the game governed by these rules is played. And so what is nominalism again? Nominalism is usually contrasted with realism. So if you thought that the mental, you know, the terms... Belief and desire and all those things were sort of basic mental components that we are just born and we gaze upon them with our mind's eye. Whereas nominalism is what we were just talking about that no no no, those are actually theoretical entities. Even having a pain is somehow a theoretical entity, talking about
1: it as an entity at all. So having a pain doesn't rely on for sellers having a theory of mind. Yes. You can have a pain without having that theory, you just can't know it as such. You can have it, but you can never ascribe it to yourself. and
2: You can't yeah. thingify it. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Can you? <laughs> In general, I think Rorty's a pretty clear writer. It's a fairly academic book, but there are times when he gets a kind of surly uh, flourishes. Top of page 187 is one of the ones I liked. Confused by Descartes' conflation of thought and feeling, bemused by the virgin innocence of Locke's wax tablet, and frightened by the fact That if truth is in the whole, then uncertainty is nowhere. Empiricists have fastened on what red feels like as the key to our knowledge of the natural world. For sellers, this is like fastening on what the baby feels like when its feeding is delayed as the key to common moral consciousness. (laughs) It made me laugh.
1: No, yeah,
2: no, and and I was actually
0: just thinking about that in terms of that exact analogy we were just making before about the connection between epistemology uh-huh. and morals. Far from this just being a throw-off comment, I think this is something you could take quite literally, that if you are a utilitarian, then you actually, I base moral consciousness on pain and pleasure. And so that is exactly what the baby is feeling when its feeding is delayed, is the key to the common moral consciousness. So... He's putting in a way that makes it sound dumb, but like, no, that is the
1: foundation according to many. Actually, for me, it sounds plausible. (laughs) I mean, this is like psychoanalysis 101, right? I had lots of negative side notes during this whole section.
0: I put a little smiley face part. Right. But of course, the point here is the contrast between foundationalism and holism. So it's yes. The pain of a rat or of the baby deprived a bottle is relevant to the utilitarian system, but you don't actually come up with the theory of utilitarianism just based on that. Like, no, no, you have to build a whole edifice, which then doesn't stand or fall on any given thing. In fact, babies are upset a lot of the time, and that doesn't mean on hold that the baby's life is bad. No, them being upset is a way of flourishing it's a way of telling the parent to give me something to eat or what, you know, it's actually according to a more developed moral theory it is not an evil we shouldn't drug all babies so that they never feel
2: this way but, but you're also not saying we should make them unhappy all the time because that's their flourishing you're not saying that either I'm saying it's a role there's a time
0: for everything turn 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 there's a season time to cry for the bottle so that's interesting to figure like, it seems like utilitarianism is very foundationalist, right? We have these undeniable feelings of pain and pleasure. But by the time we build it up into a theory, it becomes one that we deal with as a whole. And the central parts of it are no longer these foundationalist things about pain and pleasure. And in fact, we could make very abstract, give up my current pleasure for future pleasure and my pleasure for the pleasure of other people in the world. And these, you know, it's paradigmatic. We're using reason such that the thing that we really know, sort of the greatest happiness for the greatest number or whatever the central tenants are, the, the center of the web is no longer the things you started with. So that makes it sound like it's not foundationalist at all. All right, I'm sorry, I just ran with this damn analogy. We should keep keep going here. Right after that, to sum up, Page 188, as an epistemologist, Sellers is not offering a theory about inner episodes. Rather, he's noting that the traditional non-behaviorist notion of epistemology is the confusion of an account of such episodes with an account of the right to make certain assertions. So on page 189, he says, just this thing about like why we sympathize with babies and we don't sympathize with pigs. Yeah, it's just... Why, why we sympathize with koalas. That's on page 190. I, I just, yeah. Getting into this talk of morality is entirely relevant here because he has this whole section here on why we consider somebody part of the moral community is comparing to why we consider somebody part of our epistemic community. It's as if we – when we're dealing with non-human actors, things that don't have a full-blown language – or maybe even those that possibly do, where you know he brings up computers or something like this, then we're making a judgment based on our imagining what they would say if they could talk.
1: Not imagining what they feel. Where would a discussion of empathy fit in here? This fact does not mean that our or the koala's pain is nothing but its behavior. It just means that writhing is more important to our ability to imagine the koala asking for help than what is going on inside the koala. He's going farther than sellers in this. For sellers, we are in the habit of thinking about what's going on in the heads of others. And when we think about the writhing of a koala in pain, we might even cringe when we think about that. We are feeling some sort of pain ourselves and we're imagining the pain of the koala. No one has imagined a koala opening up its mouth and asking for help. And it's not our, and we're not imagining the koala's disposition to do that. That's behaviorism. That's not methodological behaviorism in the spirit of Sellers. Sellers has no problems with us imagining the pain of others. This is where he lost me, and I started to see him as a rank behaviorist. (laughs) So what is the point that Rorty is trying to get us to that you think is beyond Sellers? Well, just this specific point. Sellers doesn't have a problem with us having thoughts about the feelings inside the koala as opposed to this whole construction of imagining a koala asking for help.
0: Let me read the last paragraph of the section. We'll see if this helps. This claim that animals' knowledge of what some things are like has little to do with justified true belief but a lot to do with morals follows naturally from the Sellersian notion that the inside of people and quasi-people is to be explained by what's going on outside, and in particular by their place in our community, Rather than conversely, which, again, makes it sound like, no, sellers is positing these inside things as things used to explain outside. So this actually, what is saying right here, seems to mischaracterize sellers in exactly the way you were just talking about. Ever since Descartes made methodological solipsism the mark of rigorous and professional philosophical thinking, philosophers have wanted to find the ground of cognition, morality, aesthetic, taste, and anything else that matters within the individual. For how could there be anything in societies which individuals had not put there? Only since Hegel, have philosophers begun toying with the notion that the individual, apart from his society, is just one more animal. But Sellers' empiricism and the philosophy of mind self-describe as incipient meditation's Hegelian meditations (laughs) succeeds in prying raw feels and justified true belief apart and depriving raw feels of their status as privileged representations. It thereby shows how behaviorism and epistemology can avoid the confusion between explanation and justification, which made empiricist epistemology seem possible and necessary. The point there was prying raw feels and justified true belief apart So in other words, the justified
1: true belief is our making a judgment about how somebody else feels. Justified true beliefs don't hook into raw feels. We can't justify beliefs based on raw feels. That's the seller's point, yeah. Right, that's the whole point of the myth the given, yep. They are pried apart, and then the justified true belief comes first. We can say things about raw feels because we come back to them with belief, With the whole theoretical framework, right? So we have raw fields, but we don't know them until we're language users, until we have specifically a language for talking about raw fields. And so we can come back to the raw fields that way. But there's no relationship of justification between them. Raw fields can't justify true beliefs.
2: They're not foundational.
1: Yeah,
0: Well, yeah, so that we had established in the Sellers episode, but here this point, the confusion between explanation and justification, this is more stretching back to our Rorty chapter one here, that I can explain why you're yelling by saying, oh, well, you're in pain. So I'm using the mental thing as an explanatory tool, but what justifies my belief that you're in pain? It's not
1: because I somehow refer to your inner life. It's because of the behavior. Yes. Well... I think he's thinking specifically here again in terms of confusing causal explanations with justification, the sort of stuff he was talking Mm. about in the previous chapter. So we can avoid that if we use sellers so that we don't have to think of justification as resting on raw fields or interstates or representations or things like that. Then we would never develop epistemology in the first place. The relationship of those representations to the world would never become a problem because they don't serve the same justificatory role in the system. What justifies propositions are other propositions, not representations and the way they relate to the world.
0: So we find ourselves at the end of history where we have become these complex psychological creatures and we see these vast inner vistas and then we wonder what is the relationship of these desires and beliefs and things that I have to the outside world. And we think that that's basic, but no, we only have this rich inner landscape because it was built up out of linguistic practices and social practices. And that is like these sort of myths we have about ourselves, which doesn't mean that they're false. It just means it's an interpretive framework. It's a hermeneutic we have for understanding ourselves. And so that's a quite a different thing from justifying belief in the outside world, say. We would never think, unless we had become complex creatures, as, how does Nietzsche put it, we we've become interesting. We would never get this giant existential gap between our inner lives and the outer. And so if we understand how this history worked, at least in outline, how we became interesting in this way, then it dissolves, he thinks, a lot of the problems that this current way we see ourselves gives rise to in terms of epistemology. And maybe you could even make a similar thing about morality. I'm not really sure about that, right? Animals don't question what they should do. It's just because, again, this is kind of Nietzsche talking, that we've developed an excess of self-consciousness, that reason, in fact, has become a burden and, and has created moral problems. But we think this is actually a good thing, that we're able to reason in a way that animals are not. And so having this big inner landscape of considerations that wouldn't enter in an animal's head in determining what to do at any given point actually is very good and marks sophistication. And so we should not abandon the theory of, yes, we should abandon the search for how we can root our notions our intuitions about right and wrong to God's law or nature itself. That's where the analogy is supposed to work here, but we should not, Abandon the idea of a theory of morality, but yet Rorty thinks, even though these are quite similar things, yes, our notions of right and wrong were built through social functioning, our notions of how we describe our relation of mental contents to the world that was built up through these social traditions, but yet we don't think we should throw away morality. So why should we throw away epistemology? That's as close to a closing as
1: I'm going to get here. My closing is that I ran out of steam and I'm tired. (laughs) I have no interstates left to give.
2: I feel exactly the
1: own. same
0: way. Well, thanks for hanging with it. We were supposed to have Stephen Metcalf back, but I think it took a lot out of his schedule and his energy levels to make the first one, and that was with six months of trying to schedule it with him. So we, uh, we're we not going to wait <laughs> longer for this one. Seth has said that he will come back and do the political discussion, the Rody political discussion, which presumably will not be rooted so much in the, in the details of these past three podcasts that there will be something we can think about independently. A quick word about our closing song. It's a bye bye blackbirds tune called the ghosts are all right from the 2008 album houses and homes. The singer and author of this tune, Bradley Scott is my latest interview on the nakedly examined music podcast. That's episode 32 Check it out at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. The meaning of the lyrics is far from clear, but I at least am able to draw in some connections to our Rorty discussion today. See if you can do the same. So folks should go on the partiallyexaminedlife.com site and put comments on this, or go on to our Facebook group and put comments on this, and argue with us, argue with each other. We would love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter and all those other places. And thanks everybody that donated, whether you became a citizen or was a one-off donation or you bought some stuff from our store. We really appreciate all the support. And uh, if you are not in a position to financially do that, then just help spread the word about the podcast if you enjoyed what's going on here. We really appreciate it. Good night. Well, good night, everybody.